We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints. What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to matchmake your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now. So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say? I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots, and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power, and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. Welcome to Reclamation Radio. I'm Kelly Brogan, and today I would love to talk about activism and specifically embodiment as a radical and disruptive form of activism. So as somebody who spent a decade in the trenches of pharmaceutical activism and medical freedom advocacy, and was very convinced that I was positioned specifically to take down this Goliath of industry that was harming so many people. I mean, when I published A Mind of Your Own, I took out a $2 million life insurance policy and basically like ripped my clothes off and decided to run on the battlefield with my sword aloft and, uh, you know, screaming like a banshee. And I had so much rage at that point because it was a lot easier and safer and more comfortable to feel the activism in my body, literally. That's so interesting that it's called that of rage than it was the unmetabolized grief, shame, and disgust of my inner trauma dimensions beneath that rage. And it would be many years before I would start to explore why it was that life didn't feel any better, even though I was, you know, working so hard to make the world a better place and to help all of these people. And that is when I took a deeper dive into victim consciousness and 
the architecture, I guess, of the victim triangle and began to understand the role of the rescuer position and how it is that as a rescuer, and you'll hear me say this over and over and over again, because it changed my life to own this and it was not easy and it was not comfortable. And it was a portal through which I passed into a far more liberating and expansive and joyful lifescape. So, you know, the rescuer is also in victim consciousness, imagining that she must save the victim, right? That she is specifically appointed and, you know, specifically gifted with whatever is necessary to save that victim from the big bad enemy. Uh, Of course, reifying that victim's incompetence and inability to save themselves and also empowering the enemy. I call it the erotic caress of the enemy because it is nearly an obsession, if not frankly, an obsession for most activists who are so focused on the wrongdoings of the so-called bad evil enemy. Well, I have come to understand evil through the lens of disconnection and specifically disconnection from whatever it is that animates us, you know, whatever it is that the stuff of our soul sparks from. So disconnection from that disconnection from our inner landscape and disconnection from each other, disconnection from nature. When we are in this state, it is very, very easy to be influenced by aspects of ourselves that take the wheel and that meet needs impulsively and directly in ways that can appear wrong from the outside in. And it's my assertion, having done a good amount of shadow work and parts work, that all of us, but I'll just speak for myself, are capable of doing pretty much anything, (laughs) that we all have the entire spectrum within. We all have the whole circus inside and that it's a matter of self-awareness to come to understand how to organize, harmonize, and bring into, you know, the constellation of an inner family, all of these different parts so that none of them are acting out of sync and out of unison with the rest. So I want to talk a little bit about like, how do we get to this place where we are living in a world that we imagine we are in a position to fix, that we are so distraught around how wronged we are, maybe as a certain subgroup or maybe as humans in general, by other humans, by other non-humans. And we devote ourselves to the energy of writing what is wrong, fixing what is wrong. So when we think about activism, we might think about, you know, legislative activism or protesting or gathering with other like minds to talk about, you know, the problems and maybe generate some solutions. There's a lot of cognitive process around it, right? So it's thinking and strategizing and planning. And I would like to zoom out a bit and focus on how it is that we are susceptible to deception, you know, as, as people (laughs) and why it is that some folks may be more susceptible than others, why you might have friends and family members who you feel are terminally asleep and you just can't seem to wake them up. And then why it is that embodiment, that coming into reunion with your body is potentially the most powerful antidote to all that is wrong in the world. And it may be that the external solutions you imagine are going to bring us to this more beautiful world are relativized by the paradigm shifting power of inner solutions. So let's talk about trauma and where it all begins. So there are in the field a couple of different types of trauma. There are probably many more that I'm about to list, but there are developmental traumas. There are shock traumas, which are what they sound like. There are medical traumas. There are specific traumatic effects that can be encoded in the nervous system when we are pre-verbal before we have, you know, cognition and memories forming. There are those that can occur later in life and still have an enduring 
impact, even if it's, you know, an accident that happens in our 20s. The chronic trauma that represents the stress of being a child to unattuned parents is the trauma that interests me most because it applies to 100% of human beings as far as I can determine. So when I list some of the ways that this kind of chronic unattunement can impact us, you may even think, well, this is just like growing up in the generation that we grew up. However, there is so much research from the still face experiment to attachment theory experimentation that looks at how essential it is for a caregiver and potentially specifically a mother to use her nervous system and specifically her ventral vagal nervous system. The vagus nerve you may have heard of is the largest cranial nerve and the ventral vagus is the branch of this nerve. This is called polyvagal theory developed by Stephen Forges. And I'll uh, share an article on it as a part of this cast. But this branch innervates the voice box, the inner ear, the heart and lungs, and the facial muscles. So this is called the social engagement system. And it's how we can determine safety through facial expressions. This is a learned exposure. This is a learned conditioning through our caregivers. We aren't born with this. It's something that is co-created and that's why it's often called co-regulation of the nervous system. So imagine, you know, the impact of masking mothers and children, infants for multiple years in, you know, this window, it's extraordinary to conceive of the even deeper disruption of that attunement that could have been a potential intended consequence of some of the mask agenda for reasons that I'm about to discuss, like why it is that when you don't have that attunement, you are so controllable. So when we are raised in these ways and our caregivers don't have the wherewithal because they are so disconnected from their own system, to attune to ours, to see what we need, to perceive it, to have the bandwidth, so to speak, to meet our needs and observe in ways, are we flushed and too hot? Are we hungry? Do we need a diaper change? Like, is there something that is like too loud in the environment? Their job is to attune to us as infants so that we can begin to experience safety in our own expression, right? Our own bodily expression. And then we grow up, right? And we're told things like, you're okay. That's like the ultimate emotional gaslight, right? You're okay. No, I'm actually not. That's why I'm screaming and having a tantrum. Okay, no, I'm not okay, actually. You know, stop crying. You know, go to your room and calm down with no assistance as to how to actually achieve that or accomplish that. Then we go to school and we are told when we can eliminate So literally, we are told that we can only pee after we are given permission to do so. And I'll come back to this because, you know, literally the reclamation of urination and the practice of urination is one of the deeper processes of somatic embodiment that I have engaged in my personal life. I'll explain that more later. But then, you know, we go to school and we are micromanaged and conditioned in all of these ways that, of course, in the activism community, you know, we are concerned about. But the ways that we lose control, we are divorced from our biological impulses is not just, you know, an incidental. It's actually a very, in my perspective, uh, specific part of this disconnection agenda, right? We are often raised by parents who are themselves afraid of other bodies, their own body, right? They're afraid of germs. They're afraid of, you know, um, illnesses. And so we're running to the doctor all the time, conditioned around the fact that the body makes mistakes, that it is fundamentally reckless and dangerous and unreliable, and that we need to be worried about things like, you know, contagion and dirtiness between us and the invisible enemy in the air. Food is used as a reward. We are told to eat when we are not hungry. So we are disconnected from our own natural sense of uh, satiety and interest in eating. What is hunger actually? 
Is it something that we engage when we are being praised or is it something we engage when we actually have a biological need? And then, of course, there is the coupling of our sexual vital force energy and shame, right? So I've I've talked about this, you know, whether it's just being too boisterous and jumping around, jumping on the couch, running around, dancing, singing, expressing, emoting when it's like not appropriate, or whether we are, you know, caught masturbating or something like that and shamed for that. If we're shamed as a girl for wearing something inappropriate, like too short a top or too short a skirt. And so we have all of these now heavily normalized ways that we are conditioned around our impulses, our native sense of our inner biological terrain. We are conditioned around this idea that somebody else knows better what's going on inside of us and that we need to defer to that authority in order to know how to be in this body. So the disconnection between self and body right? This like Cartesian dualism starts very, very early through seemingly commonplace, you know, patterns of parenting. And this and many other emotional dimensions lead to the crystallization of victim consciousness. And I often talk about how there are two phrases that are specific to like they're like the kind of neon signs of victim consciousness. One is I can't, and the other is I have to. And if you think about all of the disempowerment that is encoded in us through all of these means I just described, of course, you're going to come away feeling like, no, I can't. I can't do that. I'm not able to do that. And I have to do this. When you have to do something, it is because you don't believe that you have a choice. And so the reclamation of choice, in my opinion, is the whole point of the process of self-actualization and individualization. So when you recognize that you have a choice that is never compromised, you always have choice. You always have choice on the micro, on the macro. You have choices about your interpersonal dynamics. You have choices about your lifestyle. You have choices about your spiritual perspective and your narration. You are here to express your uniqueness through the power of your choice. So that reclamation process cannot be undertaken without a recognition that the prize, the goal, the holy grail is understanding how to resolve the I have tos into, you know, the experience of personal choice. So our nervous systems are dysregulated by these practices that induce a divorce from our own bodies by the never really being exposed to the arc of an emotion. So there are many of us who feel like if we start crying, like we might never stop crying. I don't know if you've ever had that inner experience of like the first tears, especially in certain inappropriate places and spaces, you might feel like afraid that there's going to be a tidal wave of tears. That's never going to stop. Well, that's because you never experienced emotions as having an arc because the impediment of your caregivers own discomfort in their systems around your so-called negative emotions was such that they had to tell you to stop. They had to make it stop, whether it was with a lollipop or a smack, right? That is you know, how we get to this place where we have a relationship to our own sensations, our own emotions in our body called feelings. <laughs> that is like a, an inner warfare. It's an inner battlefield. And what happens to our nervous systems for those reasons and more, including biological toxicity and exposure, you know, to literal toxicants and, you know, dietary influences, et cetera, is that we end up arrested in a state of activation and the activation can look like all of the trauma responses at once, right? So fight and flight are the sympathetic responses and also freeze and fawn right? Which are from the dorsal vagal. You know, this is again, part of polyvagal three. So, which is the sort of primitive lizard like immobilization response and reflex that our animal nature sort of comes with. So 
when we are in this freeze, but also this vigilance, there is often an experience in our lives of like running in place, like running a million miles an hour in place. And we express it in different ways. I know I definitely tend more to the vigilant, anxious side of the spectrum, whereas many of my close friends tend more to the freeze and inaction side of the spectrum. And in, you know, so here is the landscape that has been either intentionally, you know, crafted, conditioned and enforced and supported, or it's just fertile soil for the latest psychological operation, the latest agenda to render us in service of a power structure that ultimately is not serving us back, okay, to put it euphemistically. So this is where we can talk about what is referred to as trauma-based mind control. So how is it that through propaganda and the psychological mastery that clearly those who are in control of media and you know that that sort of hidden hierarchy clearly possess so trauma becomes an essential ingredient to population control and whether that is through dependent models like the educational system, the medical system, or whether it's through specific false flags and media making catastrophes, or, you know, this latest endeavor, you know, over the past couple of years, trauma is necessary. It's necessary. So a psychological operation has a pretty typical anatomy every time, right? So often, especially over whether you know we're looking at 9/11 or AIDS or you know so-called SARS-CoV-2 there is catastrophic fear right so there's emergent fear right so there's like a big cataclysmic event right that you need to pay attention to and then there is an enduring right so it's essential that we don't enter that natural ebb and flow of our autonomic nervous system right into the fight or flight, and then down into parasympathetic rest and digest repair, right? So it's essential that we stay arrested because that's where we are most disconnected from our higher faculties. So there's catastrophic fear. It's all the more effective when there's an invisible enemy, because then how can you determine (laughs) whether it's actually there or not? And then there are all of these subtle layers of psycho-emotional control that we, the population, right? We actually self-administer and virtue signaling, right? So I am good. If I do this, you are bad. If you don't, right? Compliance, right? So the social pressures of conformity, and there've been extraordinary studies and, and videos out there where you can literally watch people sitting in a waiting room, getting up out of their seat over and over again to a bell chime, having no idea why they're doing it, participating simply because the other person in the room is doing it, right? So we are wired for this kind of tribalism, obedience, and of course, the divide and conquer polarity. So how it is that when we are in this more childlike consciousness and arrested in these trauma dimensions, we think in black and white, right? So you're either on this team or you're on that team. And this is the two teams are both serving, obviously, the third party's agenda, right? So in more health-related psyops, the body is essentially treated as a an object and as a commodity. And it's important that public health and infectious disease sees the body as something that is the responsibility of not yourself and not somebody else necessarily, but of the state, if you will, to manage the associated dangers, right? So that's where things like asymptomatic carriers are a very important part of the psychology of an operation like this or HIV AIDS, because you cannot possibly know how dangerous you are, how dangerous your body object is. So you have to be assessed. And then once you're assessed, we will tell you what you must do with that body. And so these are all very important elements of a psychological operation. And they bring us straight into the consciousness of the unattuned aggressor. And that's why 
with virtue signaling and with, you know, so many who then become agents of that aggressor, this Stockholm syndrome phenomenon of, you know, seeing that there is an unattuned energy here that is attempting to control and dictate beyond our own preferences, and then allying with that against those who would seek to retain their sovereignty, their bodily autonomy. It's kind of brilliant, you know, it works. So how do we resist? Well, this is what I have found as somebody who has been an angry activist, as somebody who has been an obedient and compliant servant of the system. I see those now as very related, right? Very related in terms of the emotional maturation and development that I had access to at the time. So when I was a servant, obedient and compliant, I was very much in the relationship to my body that is a match to that system. I had literally no relationship to my body. How about that? I, um, I mean, I remember before I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I probably pooped once a month and had no idea that that was a problem, that that wasn't normal. I mean, <laughs> what changing my diet did for my life, for my digestive system and how it allowed me to see how far I had strayed, you know, that's actually what dysbiosis etymologically means is wrong living. (laughs) So I had no idea how far I had strayed because I was not home in this body. So of course it appealed to me to plug into a system that says, don't worry, we got your body. We'll tell you what your body's doing. We'll offer the tests. We'll offer the interventions. We'll save you from that body. Should she become problematic, right? So the way to progress into more expanded states of sovereignty, personal authority, and self-ownership is it's not a will-based thing. It's an integration. And it's specifically a nervous system expansion. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Your relationship to fear, your relationship to shame, and your capacity for connected intimacy are all essential for you to walk this path. However, if your nervous system does not have the capacity to hold the energies of fear, to hold the energy of shame, then you will continue to collapse into the resonant vibration of victim consciousness, that familiar place of helplessness and dependency and externalized focus. So When you have a relationship to fear that is reifying this idea that there is something bigger and badder than you out there coming to get you, whether it's a so-called viral particle or whether it's the government, you will remain activated in your nervous system to an extent that disallows higher functioning and higher levels of free thought. And most essentially that interferes with your inner intuitive guidance and your ability to be present to the here and now, and your ability to sense what should be done, right? When I think about living an intuitively led life, I think about having this ever present guidance, knowing what needs to be said, knowing which direction to turn, knowing what to choose knowing what to pay attention to, that is power. That feels like power. Not being somehow like granted permission and liberties that I then don't even know what to do with, right? Or like, you know, just sort of become the, there's a new shiny object on the horizon that then I'm seeking, right? So the ability to hold fear in the system and to relate to it intentionally and consciously is probably one of the deepest dimensions of healing because you must begin to relate to all of the old fear that is stored literally in your tissues, right? So, so many incredible thinkers, you know, like Peter Levine, Candace Pert, we have great reason to believe that trauma is an embodied process as much as it is you know, a grid of thoughts that reinforce that disempowerment. So what do you do with the arrested stress physiology in your system so that when it comes up again, so that when you are triggered, 
You know, when you have what is called a somatic sequence, right? For me, it's like, I feel a clench in my chest. Then I have heat that goes out under my arms and I have a sensation that goes up my neck and to my eyes and the whole system clenches, right? That's a sequence that I now recognize when that comes online, it is almost never about what's actually going on in front of me, but I could imagine and enter into the illusion that I am being threatened in real time and space by like an email or a lover or whatever, right? I could imagine that and really live into that reality. I mean, that's the simulation, right? I could experience that as being provoked in real time. If I don't have command of my system and the capacity to work with, not resist or suppress, but to work with these sensations and feelings of fear as they arise in my system, right? So the shame piece is also very key and has been a major focus for me as I have grown and evolved and changed because the social pressures that I referenced above are only effective if you are controlled through shame, which is the most powerful form of social control. Of course there is because it rides this deep sense that something is broken and wrong about us fundamentally. And that if that is exposed, we will be exiled, ostracized, abandoned, or worse. So whenever we have a little flicker of it, most of us will do anything necessary to quiet that, which will mean that we've gotten in line. So when you are willing to risk social and interpersonal disapproval, to be who it is that you are, to walk with integrity, to stand by what it is that you believe, even if you're not totally certain it's true yet, right? When you are able to hold that shame in your body and to work with the old energies of shame from your childhood that are now being you know, activated in the current moment, you will only be able to hold that because your nervous system has developed the capacity to remain in witness while these energies swirl around. And because you trust your body to tell you how to work with that, right? So when I've worked with shame, a lot of what has come up is postural, right? So I might have a little inkling of shame and I'll be working with my coach and she'll suggest that I ask my body what shape my body wants to take. What does my body want to do? And almost always I want to curl into a ball. And so a lot of Peter Levine's work is around, who is, by the way, the founder of Somatic Experiencing, is around the completion of those simple motions, right? Whether it's like bracing against something, pushing something away, curling up, the completion of what it is that we were arrested in expressing so that that can be integrated and released. There's also the resourcing of connection, which requires the capacity for intimacy, right? So many of us have tagged intimacy with danger, with loss of self, with all manner of horrific experiences, right? So we might imagine that being close to somebody means serving them, means surrendering every aspect of ourselves so that they can feel okay, right? If this is what intimacy is, no wonder most of us are afraid to access that the moment we come close to it, right? One of the most interesting aspects of love addiction or anxious attachment is that it seems like on the surface, and this is a lot of PM Melody's work, it seems like on the surface, we are afraid of abandonment, right? We're afraid of being left alone, or we just like are craving longing for that connection. But many theorize and MPMLD's work on love addiction is that actually what we're afraid of is intimacy. And so we'll get close or we'll choose people, you know, who fundamentally are incapable of offering that to us. And then we'll be in this sort of like the intense addictive pattern of the highs and the lows of connection and disconnection. So we have to be able to connect because that is a part of how we activate that social engagement system. We begin to understand that there is safety here. That's a lot of what Vital Life Project, my membership community is, is literally all about, is offering 
that sense of, you know, you're, you're with others like you, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Your nervous system can register that and you can exhale. So these elements are essential for you to be able to reclaim the power of choice. And I love alliteration. So I was looking at, you know, how can I express this in a clear way? What is it that you're reclaiming really? When you're reclaiming your choice, what are the elements that come into the reclamation of choice? So I looked at three R's, right? So the first is responsibility. When you take responsibility, oh, it's so uncomfortable. It is so uncomfortable, especially when we are in the early stages of just hoping, wishing, praying that somebody will come make it okay right that that parentified authority outside who knows better who's going to save us from ourselves when you take responsibility you declare your i am that is the beginning of the individuation process that archetypal journey home to yourself that young talks about and you relate then to your intention from the energy of an adult who is capable. You say, this body is mine. It's my responsibility. You say, these emotions are mine. Nobody made me feel this way. And nothing is actually happening to me. This is me showing me, me. It's all an experience of me. So there's nothing to burn out. There's nothing to medicate away because why would I do that to myself? This is me. This is all me. You bring online that masculine capacity for self-containment because you begin to say, I got this. I'm here. Father yourself, right? This is one of the polarity dimensions of reparenting that I'm interested in. So Another piece is the reason. So the second R is reason, right? So you take responsibility, you find the reason for being. There is a very good reason for every single thing that is happening inside of you. Every thought, every feeling, every symptom. So I love parts work and internal family systems created by Richard Schwartz. And I have found it to resonate so much with what I have taught over the years, because there's no demonizing that which comes from you. So if there are no bad parts of us, then that means that there's no crushing the ego, right? Or transcending the ego. There's no, you know, something that has to be stopped. There's only curiosity. There's a comportment towards your inner impulses, your inner dynamics, your symptoms, your sensations that fundamentally approves of their presence, right? So if I have a part of me that wants, you know, harm to befall somebody who has wronged me, and I also have a part of me that would like to do the right thing the right spiritual thing, those two parts are going to be at war with each other. And the one that I feel most blended, that's the term they use with, is going to be the one I identify as part of my personality. And the other one I'm going to project on somebody else and imagine is not there, but that war wages, right? And what is often experienced is this discomfort, anxiety, this sense of dis-ease, this sense of unwellness. So when you begin to understand that there is a reason for everything happening inside of you, and it's not, right? So it's your responsibility. So it's no, nothing has to change on the outside in order for you to learn more about what's happening on the inside and to make sense out of it and to understand its early origins. Not that you need to know the memories. Honestly, a lot of the specific narratives of your childhood can be a distraction from getting into a harmonious relationship with the terrain of defenses whether that's, you know, anger, anxiety, all of the, the habits, right? So the part of you that wants to eat all the cookies, the part of you that wants to sleep instead of get up to your alarm, 
when you understand that there's a good reason, you know, they call it a positive intent for all of these parts to be doing what they're doing, then you relax and release the compulsion to get something on the outside to change in order for you to not feel the feeling. So a lot of activism stems from an unwillingness to feel the deeper emotions, the fear, the shame, the terror, the disgust that are mitigated by this part that says, if I just fight the fight, if I just contribute to making the world a better place, then it will be better. But there's still that part that is in exile, right? And then another element, a third R of choice reclamation is the reunion. So this is what I have come to understand is one of the most radical forms of activism, which is the reunion with your body. So the term for inner perception of sensations is interoception. And the way to begin to reclaim that gaze within so that you're not obsessively focused on all of the variables outside of yourself that must change in order for you to feel okay, right? All of the ways that you can become susceptible to the fear porn of, you know, any given psyop. When you orient inward, it's very, it's a very courageous act because there are many reasons, good reasons why we would not want to take responsibility for what is happening inside and would rather focus on managing the external variables, right? So when you initiate this reunion, I'm biased that one of the first steps is engaging the reclamation of choice through lifestyle change, right? So that's what my program Vital Mind Reset is about. It's literally about that. Yes, it can, you know, we have evidence that it can heal help you heal and facilitate, you know, the remission of all sorts of things. However, what I think is really going on is that it's an elaborate ritual, a 30 day experience where you reclaim your power of choice, where your nervous system is sent a sufficient signal of safety such that the, your activated fight, flight, freeze is disrupted and you can begin to deactivate, right? So you can begin to see, oh, my choices have power. I'm here now right? I'm not actually where I was when I was seven or six. It's like orienting on a fundamental level. However, there are all of these mundane ways, simple ways that you can begin the reunion process literally right now. So a lot of these come from the somatic experiencing world. Some of them are just sort of intuitive where you might begin a practice of checking in with yourself as often as you remember. And you check in with the parts, so you can do a scan, right? This can take seconds. You just do a a scan of your body from your toes to your head, and you identify the places that are clenched or bracing and just note them. It's not a bad thing. It's, there's a good reason, remember. So, you know, for me, I almost always have clenching and bracing in my uh, shoulders, right? So my traps like right here in my belly in my vagina, actually. And I know this is extremely common for women, my inner thighs, sometimes also my hands. So if you think about like how much it changes your physiology to intentionally and slowly release these places, your whole skeletal system, your whole musculature then shifts, right? So scanning and noting, scanning for any sensations, and also beginning a practice of asking your body what she wants, what does she need, right? So these days I get myself socks when I need them. I change the temperature on the air conditioner at the first indication that I'm uncomfortable. I am heavily invested in my physiologic comfort unless I am, you know, intentionally engaging a challenge, right. In the form of dance or exercise or whatever, as I move through the day, I meet my nervous system and my body where she is. And I care. I actually give a shit about what is wanted. This is a radical act 
because the trust that then begins to build, your body literally begins to relax because finally somebody is here and somebody is listening. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of time. You are attuning to yourself. This is the ultimate in reparenting because you can tell yourself, I am beautiful, I am worthy, I am lovable, I'm okay, I'm safe all day long. However, if you have patterns of stress physiology stored literally in your body that are reactivated over and over again, every time there's the slightest trigger, those affirmations are not going to do much for you, right? So how can you begin to meet your body where she is, provide those, you know, what is needed, and then note where it is that something might want expression, right? And that there might be some sort of an impulse that wants attention. And I found that the impulse can range from the very basic biological, right? So like coughing, sneezing, burping, whatever, all the way to the creative. So when I went deeper in this reunion process, I chose to honor every single creative impulse, no matter how ridiculous. And you can explore my Instagram (laughs) for more data on that journey. The number one practice, however, that I have engaged, I referenced earlier, is my relationship to peeing. So I noted that I have coupled two words in my vernacular, pee and quick. And I use the phrase pee quick, like I'm going to pee quick with pretty much anyone I'm with, whether it's my kids or a colleague or you know somebody I'm paying for a service or, you know, a friend I'm meeting for tea. I'm going to go pee quick. I learned that probably from school, but also from a culture that said, you and your needs are second to me and my needs. And this is like, I also, in many ways, raise my children this way. So this is just a legacy of emotional immaturity that has been handed down because Our parents did not know how to meet their own needs because they were not attuned to their own systems because they, you know, were in in this chain of legacy of self-suppression or safety. I learned that, right? So when I have to pee, I might tell myself, I don't have time. It's inconvenient. Let me just finish this or whatever. These days, when I have to pee, I go pee. And I remember one of the first times I had this experience professionally was when I was on Luke Story's podcast. Uh, I don't know when it was, I guess in 20, late 20, no, no, no. It was early 2022 and it was three hours long and I had to pee. So I literally told him I'm going to go pee. (laughs) And that is something I would have never done. It sounds so silly. I would have suppressed that. And I would told my body, nobody, what you need right now. Okay. So that could be water. It could be a snack. It could be a rest you know, but specifically peeing is not permitted. So I am now my own domesticator. I am now in many ways, my own abuser, right? And this is of course how it works. So not only do I go pee when I have to, and whenever I have to, I catch myself whenever I say that I'm going to run and do it, or I'm going to do it quickly. And now it's a joke with my friends where I, you know, I say, I plan to go have an indulgent and pleasure-filled experience of enjoying the transition from the discomfort of having to pee to the relief of having peed for as long as it takes me. And you are welcome to wait. (laughs) So like, it's whatever, it's like a comedic transition that I'm in. However, this is one of the simple ways that we can begin to signal I'm here, body, things are different now. There is safety available. And here's why, because I am attuned to you. When I think about the lover that I want, right? And I think most women would agree. I want, you know, a man who is so observant, who so honors, respects, and is so invested in what my body is expressing and showing that he can read, you know, like the smallest flinch, like the smallest shift, and he can course correct and begin to, you know, connect with me in a more attuned way, right? Whether that's 
that he sees, you know, that whatever's happening is not quite right. is putting me into like a little discomfort or dissociation or whether it's, you know, that he can perceive that maybe I need like a strong squeeze instead of a light touch. This is how we can self-husband, right? It's how we can become that lover that we long for, right? And it is, it's a radical act. It's a radical act because you can now think freely, you can perceive, and you can engage your intuition. And fundamentally, you are reclaiming what is referred to as neuroception, right? So you are reclaiming your capacity to use this ventral vagal nervous system to assess safety, but like really assess safety on the outside. So I I think of this image, like the pile of clothes in, in your dark bedroom, right. That you, you think is like somebody like some boogeyman or somebody there who's about to attack you. I mean, you might like jump out the window trying to save yourself, right. You might scream, right. You might freeze and be up all night long, imagining like somebody's there trying to get you this process of dedication and commitment to embodiment and a reunion with the rightness of your own body, right? That your body does not make mistakes, literally ever does not make mistakes. It's turning on the lights. So you can see it's just a pile of clothes on the chair, and then you can go back to sleep and rest. When you are in this arrested state of nervous system dysregulation, you can only perceive that as a danger. And all of your choices are clouded and you literally cannot think freely. You cannot perceive what is there to perceive. There's so many small examples of this in my lived experience where I have not only reclaimed elements of self-possession that allowed me to make choices differently and respond differently, but I also have noted that things that would have, you know, had me throwing up in the bathroom, like with nerves like conversations with family members or something like that. Now I can just do on a Tuesday. Why is that? Right? Because there is more safety available for me. And that safety has come from my relationship to myself and my own body. Right. So like, you know, for example, I had an experience, like I leased a car recently. Right. And I, I don't know how many of the women listening have, least a car on your own. I found it a very intimidating experience, right? Cause it's very blurry, right? And there's a lot of room for boundarylessness and, and a lot of meaning like, it's not like, oh, it costs, you know, $600 and that's just what it costs, right? Like you're going into uh, Macy's or something like that. It's not like that, right? So there's this feeling of like, oh, how do I show up to not be swindled? How do I show up to make sure that I am protected? Anyway, so I was literally signing this document with the guy who was leasing the car to me. And I had this wave of anxiety in my chest and this fear, like I was doing something wrong or I was committing to something that, you know, I would later regret, or I was making a mistake. And I might formerly have like suppressed that and said, like, just ignored it or not even totally perceived it. And instead because I noted it and I was able to, you know, be present in the here and now I told him, I said, I'm feeling anxious. I talk about this. Anyway, I ended up like adjusting parameters of the lease. Like it's like the years and whatever, (laughs) some of the cost. And so I was able to access an opportunity to align something more with my actual preferences that I otherwise would have, you know, suppressed, ignored, and then maybe later shamed myself for, or projected my own victimization onto this guy and resented him, whatever. There's so many dynamics that can can surface around fight, flight, freeze, and fawn is sort of a, but fawn is a huge one for most of us that is sometimes called like appeasement, right? So when we smile, when we're terrified and we laugh and giggle, when we are feeling threatened. So the capacity to be in the here and now means that you can be present in your adult energy and you can 
discern what is being asked of you by the situation that you're facing. And it also means that you can expand your consciousness, right? So when I see people getting hysterical in the activism community, whether it's about whether a virus exists or not, or whether, you know, the earth is flat around that hysteria that I observe, I see through, you know, the lens of the father wound and the fact that that energy is not yet on board that says there's no threat here. (laughs) It's okay. And I can explore something. I can listen to something, you know, I can expose myself to a new idea and, and fundamentally I can consider what it would mean to live in a world where there's this bigger layer of deception, right? Because for, for most of us, the layers of deception also come with a release of hope for the benevolent caregiver to finally show up. Right. That those of us who have questioned really deeply on a lot of subjects, we've given up hope, you know, that there is such a thing as a benevolent caregiver. Right. Like it it can be, there can be that much deception. It's okay. It's okay. Right. So we're not holding on to any thread, like literally nothing that we've been told needs to be true in order for us to feel okay in the world. sounds kind of funny, right? But a lot of times when, you know, certain truthers like hit their limit of what they're willing to even entertain and you can see they get flushed and, you know, there's like histrionics that is because their nervous system, in my opinion, their nervous system can literally not capacitate what they are making it mean for something that they have believed since they were a little kid to be not true. Right. So free thinking Self-possession and sovereignty are dependent on this embodied trauma healing, right? So it's not just talk therapy and journaling, right? That there is a reunion with the body. There is the taking of personal responsibility. And there is the understanding that there is always, always a good reason for every single thing that the body does that can help progress us on this path of discovery so that we can access more and more consistently, you know, what is referred to in internal family systems as the capital S self, which I think of, because I love thinking of things in gendered polarity as the sacred union of the inner masculine and feminine, right? It's that strong spine and that soft open heart. So a lot of the qualities that become available then are curiosity, the antidote, right? The antidote to fear, compassion, creativity, connectedness, calm, clarity. This is the state that you get to live in. And it's not to the exclusion of emotions. It's just that emotions are no longer a problem. And by the way, not just the so-called negative ones, the big expansive positive ones too, which are very difficult to capacitate and feel, which is why I often talk about like how, when it is that we get the thing we've been striving for and we imagine we want, and then we get it. And it's like, tastes like nothing. And then we're on to the next thing because we, we don't have that capacity built to hold pleasure, joy, contentedness, let alone ecstasy and and bliss. So when we commit to the body through lifestyle choice, and self-care and through self-attunement and the practice of embodiment, we fundamentally have the opportunity to resolve the victim consciousness that renders us vulnerable to control by systems, by other individuals in toxic dynamics. And that is how we enjoy what sovereignty has to offer and self-sourced safety. It's how we can begin to see clearly and orient to our lived experience with a fresh perspective and to unblend ourselves with all of these projections and from our past and also a neurotic obsession with our future. It's how we get to finally be here and now. I hope that was helpful.
If you like this episode today, you will love my one-day virtual event on February 25th, Science and Eros. This event is for radical truthers, free thinkers, activists, practitioners, lovers, and anyone who is ready to go deeper on the conversation around what's real, what's actually going on, and where we can focus our energy so that we can actually feel fulfilled and enlivened as we expose deceptions and bust myths. Join me and my dear friend, Dr. Tom Cowan, as we explore what is real in biology and medicine, where our victim stories start, why sacred union is the most disruptive form of activism, and why we take the bait of lies. To join us live or for the replay, go to scienceanderos.com or find me on Instagram at my handle, Kelly Brogan, MD, for more details. I can't wait to see you there. <laughs>